A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And a reading from the book of Exodus. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. A reading from the letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you, Bob. Good morning. Friends, this morning we begin a sermon series on the Beatitudes, those eight or nine sayings of Jesus on the so-called Sermon on the Mount. His Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, and the Beatitudes is chapter 5, 1 through 11. We'll be looking at that for the next few weeks, and so as we do so, will you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations and thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For it is in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I want to talk about the blessed life. Or the good life. What is a good life? Good, better, best. These days, Grace and I are, are we're accompanying our eldest son, Daniel, to discern what is a good school. In 18 months or so, he'll be applying, those, applying to those college applications. What's a good school? or a better school, or the best school? What's the good life, or the better life, or the best life? There was a December 2010 article in the Harvard Business Review 
by Tony Schwartz, who's the president and CEO of the Energy Project. The title of the article was Six Ingredients to a Good Life. And see if you agree with this. Six ingredients. Constantly seek to learn and grow, but accept yourself exactly as you are. Add value to others and take care of yourself. And then focus intensely and renew regularly. Sound good? Six ingredients, sort of mix it in there and shake it up and boom, you've got a good life, right? What is a good college or the best college? Well, Princeton Review and U.S. News and World Report will have a lot to say about that. So does Yelp, right? What is a good steak? What's a better steak? What's the best steak? And the good, better, best restaurant that will prepare that good, better, best steak. Or a good, better, best hotel. Trivago and Hotel.com has a lot to say about what would make a good place to stay. So what is a good, better, best life? A good life. Even when we were young, we sort of had notions of what a good life might be. Three boys in the schoolyard were bragging about their fathers. The first boy says, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He then calls it a poem. They gave him $50. The second boy says, that's nothing. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a song. They give him $100. The third boy says, I got you both beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon, and it takes eight people to collect all the money. What makes for a good life? One of my LinkedIn followers a few weeks ago, his title underneath his profile photo says, he's the chancellor of UHK, University of Hard Knocks. Right? We have many folks in our neighborhood who have gone to college and some who have gone through the University of Hard Knocks and we live in the same neighborhood. So what is a good, better, best life? Is it a 3,000 square foot home, or a 6,000, or a 10,000? Is it having a good education, having money, having networks? What is it? 2,000 followers, 10,000 followers, 1.5 million followers? What is the blessed life? What is the good life? This sermon series on the Beatitudes that uh, Jack has chosen for us as a congregation to explore these next eight weeks or so has a lot to say what it means to have a good life, or what Jesus calls the blessed life. It's called the Beatitudes because there are about eight or nine blessed sayings. And Beatitudes comes from a Latin term that means blessing. And so here are eight or nine ways in which to live out the blessed life. It's not that by doing these things, you will be part of God's kingdom. It's premised on you already belong because God loves you. And because God loves you, therefore, this is how you're to live it out. Right? This is how you're to live out your calling. As a child of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is how you're to live. And there's about eight or nine of these. And the first one we'll be looking at today is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, Jack has chosen for us to also look at two other texts, Exodus 20 and Ephesians 1. And Ephesians 1 gives a little bit more texture as to what is this, this blessed life? Why are we to be poor in spirit? Why are we to be humble? To be poor in spirit is to be humble, to defer and to submit to the wills and ways of God. Well, Ephesians 1 goes on to describe our living God. This God who created us. This God who redeems us. This God who sustains us. The Apostle Paul declares this God as, as one who, in his infinite wisdom, saw to it that the Lord would adopt us. Okay, so we had no choice. Um, that this God in his infinite wisdom uh, created us. In his infinite wisdom, he decided to love us and to show his love in this way, in Jesus Christ. And that by Christ's own work, by his dying, by his blood, our trespasses, our sins, our brokenness is healed. And then it goes on to say how in his infinite wisdom, he has shown to us, he has revealed to us the mystery of his will. And the mystery of his will throughout all time, from the beginning of time, was to bring all of heaven and earth and everything in it to himself. Now notice there, in what I just described and what Ephesians 1 is saying, there's nothing in our sophistication that did any of that, right? There's nothing in our education, in our pedigree, in our connections, in any of it that chose or that created or that adopted or that redeemed or that reconciles the world. God did it. Okay, so that removes all bragging rights, right? That removes all semblance of any claim that we can have on what I have. Yes, I studied. Yes, I applied, uh, submitted the applications. Yes, I worked hard and, and did the interviews and all of that. But God was the one that provided the energy and the, and the intellect and the thinking and all of that. And so that's why Exodus 20, our other text, which is the preamble to the Ten Commandments, says, guess what? The purpose of why you have been called, the purpose of why you have been created is because of this God who, you know, who freed you from Egypt, who freed you from sin, and therefore you shall have no other gods before me. And so Exodus and Ephesians are essentially saying the same thing. Look, your, your purpose in life is to worship this God who's so majestic, who is so gracious, who is so infinite, who is so loving. We can't help but be poor in spirit, therefore humble and content and grateful and, and filled with joy. But yet, we aren't always poor in spirit. We find it hard to be poor in spirit. And I think that there's because there's two reasons. One, there is pride and there is pettiness. There is pride and there is pettiness. We have mixed up the blessed life with the pursuit of what is the good, better, best life. We are under an illusion or a delusion that we are, ought to be in pursuit of 
the quantity and quality of life, it is a problem of degree rather than of kind. See, good, better, best is about degrees. Is it a good one? Is it a better one? Or is it a best one? Rather than the kind of life. See, Jesus is about the kind of life. Not about degrees. It's not about degrees as it is about kind of life. The blessed life. The blessed life that is informed and shaped after the heart of the Lord Jesus. And that's why C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters is a Christian classic. Right? C.S. Lewis knows the heart of all of us, from the youngest to the oldest and everyone in between. He argues from the perspective of a fictitious young devil learning how to keep folks from thinking about God, thinking about prayer, thinking about Jesus, thinking about the cross. The agenda is, and the plan is, let your patient, young wormwood devil, let your patient always think about themselves. Let them think about pride or pettiness. Preoccupy their worries and anxieties with that which really doesn't have eternal significance. Confuse them about the degrees of life rather than the kind of life. And so, how does the good news of Jesus then, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus then, immunize us? I know immunization is a big thing these days. I'm not going to wade into the waters about measles and immunization and all that. But we need an immunization against human pride and human pettiness. The good news of God in Jesus Christ frees us from pride and pettiness. Why? Because the cross says it is because of human pride and pettiness that sent the Son of God to die in the first place. The pride and pettiness that brought violence, violence against the Son of God. When I walked into the office this morning, this is a very difficult Sunday on so many levels. Sri Lanka last week on Easter Sunday, this morning or yesterday morning, the news coming out of Poway. New Zealand is still fresh in memory. Pastor Jan said in her pastoral prayers, reminded us of what's happening in, of what happened in Pittsburgh. The African-American churches in the South. I couldn't even stand in singing the praise song, Mighty to Save, even though I asked our contemporary music director, J.P. Hunton, to put Mighty to Save for this Sunday. Because I think as we three pastors, as we feel the gravity of the human spirit, both on a small scale and the cosmic scale, the pride and pettiness of the human spirit that would wreak havoc, senseless havoc, against innocent lives. Innocent lives. The pride and pettiness 
that is in our human hearts. It is that Son of God who takes that pride, who takes that pettiness and negates it. Negates it. Negates it. And, said that, and says that the blessed life, the blessed life, is marked not by violence, but a surrender to God. And the resurrection. The resurrection says, or the day before the resurrection, tick tock, one, two, three, in the silence, the Son of God is in the tomb. He utterly surrenders in the hands of the Father in his death. It's quiet and dark in that tomb. He can't do any other. He's dead. And it's up to God to rise him from the grave. And on that Easter morning, the resurrection is a powerful and palpable declaration. Human pride, human pettiness, will not be victorious, will not, cannot, and shall not. That's what the kingdom of God is. The life, death, and resurrection is the antidote to this world's pride and pettiness and any attempt to be prideful or petty in our ways that then result in violence, both small and big. It is a heart that is unlocked because the tomb has been rolled away and the praise and joy of God is released into the hearts and lives of people young and old to radiate, radiate throughout this world even though oftentimes it doesn't look like it. So that we can, we can say the Lord is at the center and at the circumference of his creation. Here is what a blessed life looks like. Poor in spirit, surrendered to God. This month, 11 years ago, our family lost a beloved brother in Christ. He was the husband of one of Grace's very best friends who lives in New Jersey. It was only for this sermon that I was able to look at the archive of his blog post. Young Min Ethan Chun is his name. He lived humbly to his final breath as he battled pancreatic cancer for two years from 06 through 08, leaving behind his bride of seven years and three young kids. And in that time, he blogged for two years. And in preparation for this sermon, 
poor in spirit. He wanted to blog in order to offer hope and in order to be an encouragement, in order to, for a wider community to share and to accompany him and his family on that difficult journey. March 6, 2008, he blogged, a half hour to go before I leave for chemo and I'm in excruciating sciatic pain. Ice isn't helping and I can only take 10 steps before the pain starts up. My joints are aching since they are working harder to relieve my pain, but my left leg is getting sore and starting to develop sciatica from almost working harder. Lord, I'm crying out to you. Please take this pain, this thorn away. Four days later, in March 10th, 08, he blogged, and his wife, and it was her birthday. Today is Anne's birthday. But unfortunately, I didn't have the strength to do anything for her. It's pretty frustrating, amongst other things, not being able to hold my children, not being able to run around with them, can't take them anywhere. I am a burden rather than a help to Anne. But she said something today that made me so thankful that God gave her to me. She said that for her birthday, she wanted me to never give up and to keep fighting. I know God has purpose for me and he's kept me alive thus far. It just feels like God is so far from me right now. Honestly, I can be a holy moly and say noble things like, yes, his grace is sufficient for me and that his strength is perfected in my weakness. But right now, even they fall empty. I feel abandoned. I feel like I'm left to suffer. But I will say this despite all my pain and struggles, I choose life. I want to live. I want to be used by my God. Take my time here on this earth and let it glorify all that you are worth. And then April 13th was his final blog, a few days before the Lord called him home. He titled his blog, Unfailing Love, Such Unfailing Love. He writes, Psalm 133 was Anne and my wedding scripture, and for these past seven years, these unfailing words of love are carrying us through life. From the beginning of this chapter to the end, it is so very precious to us. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. I don't know where to begin after all that's been going on these past weeks. I guess I can start with some details. I know why I was admitted into the hospital. We didn't fully realize how serious my condition has gotten with a cancer. Each change called for a reaction, and with each change, it seemed like things were not very hopeful. I could keep on writing, maybe tomorrow, but I'm getting tired. I'll close with this. I am alive and well. I am living the miracle of healing in my Lord. But that's not it. It doesn't end with healing. The race goes on. It goes on until it is finished, and God is not finished with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Most blessed Heavenly Father, you are the one who has made each of us and in Jesus Christ loves us. And through your spirit, you reassure us of that. 
our response can only be but humility and gratitude, joy and love toward you and towards one another. So might it be, O God, that we would live into that blessed life with the knowledge and love of you and knowing that we belong to you and one to another. Lord, help us to live into that life. We pray these things in Jesus' name.